Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to the rest of you. We are back. It is Monday morning with a new episode of Bitcoin Magazine Live. Um, I don't know. I guess it was news to me that we were supposed to start at 9 a.m. Pacific time this morning with the mayor of Lugano, but he did not, uh, unfortunately, have the ability to join us today. You know, being the mayor of a city, there are a lot of other things going on than coming and talking to a few of us living in our parents' basements. But you know who wasn't busy to join us? Our guest today, Nathaniel Harmon, Nate, coming to us straight out of Hawaii. I don't even want to imagine what time in the morning it is for you, man. But thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm pretty good. You know, it's early morning. The sun is barely up. Uh, it's about seven. Uh, so it was an early morning. That's fine. I'm up that early anyway. Usually just putzing around drinking coffee for couple hours in the morning so might as well come talk to you guys well talk to us a little bit you got put on our radar because of some truly incredible work that you got cooking up down in Hawaii um let's talk big picture what you're doing and then we'll dive into like the very intricate details of it sure um so I guess the best starting point because it's you know it's a It's a pretty novel idea. The the best starting point, I guess, is at the beginning. Um, I had written a paper back in 2017 uh, and tried to, you know, shop it around the department. I was at UH Manoa, uh, the University of Hawaii Manoa, in the graduate program for um, marine geology and geochemistry. Uh, I was working on some phosphate work and in situ autonomous monitoring of phosphate in the nearshore environment. And um, well, I got orange pilled real early, uh, 2012, 2013. And, you know, I was, you know, playing around with Bitcoin for a while, but in the process of building, you know, this chemistry robot for, uh, you know, lack of 20, let's save 20 words there and just call it a chemistry robot. You know, I had to learn how to program stuff. And so that got me interested. I was like, well, hey, if I already have to learn all to do this, you know, how to do all of this stuff for this one project, might as well multitask and figure out how Bitcoin works since I've been playing with it for so long. Um, so I ended up playing with it and I ended up coming up with this theory. I was listening to a lot of um, economic stuff at the time and Jeremy Rifkin came across my uh my radar in his third industrial revolution that's a book uh, about the new industrial revolution um and something was wrong with it you know a lot of it makes sense you know uh, to give the uh, listeners some background the third industrial an industrial revolution is the confluence of three separate technologies that increase productivity, efficiency, and you know communication between people. And so the, the you have an energy technology, you have a communications technology, and you have a transport technology. So you know the original one was uh, coal, the steam engine, and uh, the telegraph and the steam-powered printing press, right? So now you could communicate faster, you could, you know, you had this massive fuel source in coal, and you could transport that coal really quickly uh, using the steam engine and trains. And then the second industrial revolution happened in the US with the discovery of petroleum in Texas, Uh, you had the internal combustion engine, and then you had the telephone, the television and the radio. And both of these had massive effects. And so, you know, as we move into a, uh, you know, decarbonization, the question is, what is the new industrial revolution, right? And if we know the blueprint for the last ones, we can kind of think about what those technologies would be in the new one. And it's pretty obvious that the communication technology is the internet, the thing we're on right now. Um, And well, it's not going to be a new fossil fuel base. So it's not going to be, you know, natural gas or biofuels as a lot of people are, you know, moving around. You, you slap bio in front of diesel. It's still diesel. It's still putting off carbon. Um, so it's going to be renewable energy. And the one thing that really stuck out in the basis of my paper was that I thought um, Jeremy Rifkin was wrong. Uh, his, his, his transport technology seemed, the argument there seemed really weak. 
you know, the sharing economy and drone transport. And it just seemed like it wasn't self-consistent. So I wrote this paper saying that Bitcoin is the transport technology. And I shopped this idea around, and we can come back to this later, but I shopped this idea around to the department. You know, I was yelling about it everywhere I could because once you, you know, really dive into Bitcoin, it's all you want to freaking talk about. Um, and that may or may not have had an influence on the Mora et al. paper that Greenpeace and Brad Garlinghouse are touting. Um, and there was really no, no, no desire from really anyone to you know, work with me on this and help develop the idea. So I decided to do it myself. And this led me to an analysis on the state of Hawaii and then to ocean thermal energy conversion. Um, as OTEC happens to be the only renewable energy source that can power the state that I live in. Um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of the, I guess the, the abstract, right? <laughs> How much of this is based on like reading the sovereign individual? I'm genuinely curious because your, your analysis is, is in a similar way of the way they present a lot of the iterations of human society and then an expectation on based on what the past human societies have done based on the resources they have. These are expectations set forth. I, I haven't read that book actually. What? Yeah, you, you, you can tell me about it. Uh, I think the, I, the only book I've read, the only real book that I've read on the subject was Mastering Bitcoin. That's about as, you know, the philosophy part. Uh, you know, Andre, I've, well, I guess I've read uh, and listened to his talk since, you know, Andreas Antonopoulos' talk since 2013. But Mastering Bitcoin is about the and, and then there's Saifedean's book, which I am not a huge fan of. Um, but the sovereign individual, people keep telling me good things. So please. I mean, CK, who helped introduce the two of us, is the one who got me into it. And I'm honestly going to send him a message right now to ship you a copy because he has a, a plethora still in his, I think, leftover from the conference. Um, but the long and short of it is essentially back in the late 90s. And I believe it was published in 97, so written in 96, these two economists sort of broke down the history of human society, the first being hunter-gatherers, the second being, being the agricultural revolution, the third iteration, the industrial revolution, and then the final iteration, we, which we are watching us develop into is the information age. And this information age, they sort of highlight the fact that the internet is gonna change the way we interact with information and one another in ways that we're right now bearing witness to a lot of these things coming to fruition, like telemedicine, like telecommunications, the fact that we're here on a Zoom call chatting with you sure. and having, having a broadcast elsewhere, that even so much is allude to back in 1997, 96, allude to some form of a digital currency that is separate from governments. And it does a fascinating job of explaining how and why sort of central planning came to be and it all is rooted around the idea of property ownership and that really triggered this necessity for safety and a centralized control of this safety led way to what we now know as modern governments and how like as we continue into this information and digitized age the need for that type of safety is not going to be as prevalent or necessary as much as the safety of individual goods and values are and then that will in turn sort of take away the power from the government and give it back in theory to the people, which is, I think, one of the biggest pushes in the Bitcoin community. And one of the big reasons I think a lot of us are believers in this technology to separate it from the control of government. But I don't want to bore you with a conversation on the book. I want to, I want to learn more about how first, how Hawaii is utilizing the ocean to keep itself and the entire island sort of energized and the energy that you guys are capturing just on that side of it before we dive into the Bitcoin side of it. So at the moment, we're, we're not. The, um, this is actually a big problem. The, um, you know, Hawaii was a sovereign nation, uh, sovereign kingdom. Uh, you know, we're the, there's a palace here, Iolani Palace. Uh, it's the only 
uh, royal palace on U.S. soil. Um, it's a beautiful building if you're ever in the area. Uh, Iolani Palace is a great day trip, um, as is the Bishop Museum. Uh, some of the most beautiful places uh, you'll ever see. Um, and, you know, there were, there was, there was active, uh, active uh, trade between Hawaii and some of the other Polynesian um, islands for a while after the initial colonization by the Polynesians, but they decided at some point to halt all trade. Uh, there's even evidence of the Polynesians showing up in uh, Central and North America, you know, hundreds of years before uh, the Vikings and, um, you know, Columbus got here. Um, but they, they just ceased and they became an entirely self-sovereign nation. Uh, you know, they <clears throat> fishing, it was all based around the water cycle. Uh, you know, farming, uh, taro farming, which is, uh, you may have heard of the new lightning protocol, taro. Well, it's the staple, you know, um, roast beef. I saw his talk at Bitcoin 2022 and God, that guy is awesome. Um, but yeah, taro is, you know, it's, uh, I got super hyped when he pulls out a bag of taro chips because I eat those all the time. And, um, you know, it was all based around the ocean. Um, and now, and they had, you know, 100% of their food, 100% of their energy needs were generated locally. Um, but then, well, then we, we started trading. Then uh, Captain Cook showed up. And now we are 90% reliant on, uh, you know, external sources for food and mostly energy. Um, in fact, I did, uh, I ran, I did this analysis on the state and, uh, yeah, it's we're we're at around 20, 20 something percent, uh, low twenties as far as renewable energy. It pushes up to thirty plus when you include biofuels. I don't like to include biofuels uh, in the renewable sector. I don't think burning trash is all that. I mean, we're going to keep producing trash, but uh, whether that's a renewable source of energy is up for debate still. Um, but actually, at the moment, we we don't get any any energy from the ocean uh it's solar wind are the main two components of the renewable uh penetration here outside of that it's fossil fuels all the way um are you and i'm genuinely curious of what your opinion on this matter is and you seem to allude to it a little bit but would you say then sort of this the necessity or the way that Hawaii has handled sort of their energy st structure and grid has become reliant on the fact that because they've been, uh, they were brought in as a state in the 50s, they've then sort of in turn just followed suit with what the US government has dictated to them, whereas like they were sort of operating on their own silo. And if they were able to continue to operate as such, they would be able to develop separate to what the American structure sort of looks like. Yeah, I mean, there's there's something to say for the benefit of statehood. Uh, you know, if you you come here, you see a lot of our buildings were built around in the 50s following statehood. Uh, you'll see the say, you know, the architecture that's consistent with that time just about everywhere. Um, so there's something to be said there. But yeah, in independence, um, at both energy and food independence for the state of Hawaii is. Uh, is, is our biggest um, weakness and our reliance on the military. People don't understand that Hawaii is the most militarized piece of land on the planet. Uh, you know, people think that it's the DMZ between Korea and North Korea. No, it's actually Hawaii. We have every major um, military uh, base here. You know, we have uh, the Marines, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, Coasties, and of course, now Space Force. Um, it's funny seeing the Space Force logo on uh, buildings now. Um, it, it, the independence is, is really important uh, as you know, going forward. Uh, trade, uh, you know, we're, I, I guess a deglobalization is kind of happening and you know, being self-reliant really goes a long way, especially when you're 2,000 miles from the nearest landmass, and we'd absolutely need it. Um, 
and we have all this energy. There's all this energy here. There's just very little uh, incentive to go explore it. Um, you know, there's, uh, we actually have uh, the curtailment issue here is one of the worst in the world. Um, you know, in the middle of the day when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing, we actually generate too much energy. And, you know, there's this mandate, you know, and so what do you do with this energy? Well, you turn off the windmills. Um, so you'll often see on the North shore of Oahu or on Maui, where the largest curtailment problem is, you'll see these windmills just not turning. And you're, you, you ask yourself, well, then why? Why, why aren't we using that energy? Um, and it's, a, it's an issue, you know, demand response. Uh, our current demand response thinking is that let's turn on uh, air conditioning in buildings that aren't occupied. Um, to use is, up the energy that you guys have been storing. Yeah, and it, that, that leaves this, uh, you know, deficit in funding. It's like, well, you know, I'd say I'm, you know, building a wind farm and I'm trying to make the calculation, you know, how, how soon is it going to pay back? Well, if I have to curtail energy, that makes that calculation a lot, a lot more difficult. Um, and, you know, wind and, wind and solar, because they're intermittent, right? They're only, you know, only when the wind is blowing and only when the sun is shining, especially directly overhead, unless you have the tracking, which is more expensive, of course. Um, you know, you, so you want to use that energy when you have it. And if you have to turn it off in the middle of the day, it's, I mean, it just makes, it makes it unprofitable to build new, even though we have to, because we, you know, we were the only state um, now, you know, with the Ukraine crisis, uh, you know, everybody rushed to ban Russian oil. There's only one state who actually used Russian oil. And that was us. Um, so, you know, our, our energy prices, of course, our gasoline, you know, people are complaining about four or five dollars of for gas. And that, that was, you know, that's what we paid for years. Um, what, are, what are gas prices? I'm in Los Angeles, so I've got six dollars a gallon right now, but it sounds like you've got me beat. Uh, it, it really depends where you go. So I go to Costco and nice. Costco. Yeah, Costco has the, the cheapest energy. Uh, you know, it's like five to five and a half. Um, yeah, that's the cheapest. Oh, right. you, you, you can get higher elsewhere, but no, we, we drive, we make the, you know, <laughs> we make the, uh, the commute to Costco to fill up whenever we're in town. So a worthy trip to say the least. Yeah, um, save money. From, from a lot of what we're talking about here, it kind of seems like this is exactly what Bitcoin and specifically Bitcoin mining could solve. You have, you incorporate Bitcoin miners on these wind farms, and then there's no need to shut the wind farms down. The excess energy goes towards building off uh, a continuing to power these Bitcoin miners to in turn help boost the ha network hash rate overall, but at the same time, help the local communities, help these businesses maximize profits. Um, I don't want to spend too much time talking about technologies that exist. I'd love to really yeah your expertise now and dive into what this technology that you have really been building out and how you see it helping Hawaii and the rest of the world. Yeah. So like I said, I've been, uh, you know, I came up with this idea and then I did this analysis of the state of Hawaii. Uh, you know, how do we actually get to 2045, 100% renewable? And, you know, I went down the, well, I, I did an analysis on, well, okay, I call it the Oahu problem because Oahu is the main population center in the state of Hawaii. We have 1 million of the 1.4 million people live on this one island. Um, and you can get to, you know, the energy needs of the outer islands. They're about 200 megawatts. And you can actually solve that with intermittent energy. Um, it's going to be expensive for sure, but you, you, you can solve this problem on the outer island. So I call it the Oahu problem. It's not necessarily the Hawaii problem. So, you know, we're all talking, everybody's talking about ERCOT and the Texas grid and how they're disconnected. And well, not only, not only is Hawaii its own energy grid disconnected from the mainland, each individual island is disconnected from each other. Um, so it's really the, and we're 2000 miles from the nearest landmass. So we really are the definition of stranded energy. So I did the, I ran this analysis on one of our power plants. You know, what would it look like to replace it with the current, uh, you know, the current thinking? So there's a 600 megawatt 
power plant out um, at Kahe, Kahe Beach. Uh, it's called Electric Beach because there's the electric power plant, and then there's a great beach. Uh, there's a you know hot warm water outflow there, and it's a great snorkel spot, a uh, great diving location as well. If you come here, check it out. Uh, it's fun. You swim into the pipe, and then it kind of shoots you back out. Um, and what would that look like to replace it with, say, a wind farm or a solar uh, solar farm? And it turns out just to replace this one power plant that supplies about a third of our base, uh, you know, that firm supply for Oahu, you would need a offshore wind farm the size of Oahu itself. And that's just for a third. Uh, and so that's a ridiculous thing. Uh, you know, the environmental destruction that that would cause to our deep, deep, um, deep water corals uh, would be just incalculable. Um, and then a wind farm you would need, or a solar, solar farm, you would need something the size of four times our current, uh, you know, international airport. And that's, of course, with no space in between, just as all calculations of giant mega solar farms powering the world. They're, they, you know, there's no calculation for any space between them. They're jammed up next to each other. So there's no sunlight hitting the, the ground beneath. You have major ground you know, um, uh, land use changes. And I guess the question of course is where the hell are you gonna find that when there's a million people living on this island? There's no room for that here and it'll never happen. Uh, you can barely get, you can hardly get the permits to build uh, new housing. So building four new um, international airports is not gonna happen. So then of course, you know, you go, okay, solar, wind don't work for solving the Oahu problem. What's next? Well, hydro, we don't have rivers uh, on Oahu. Uh, there's no hydropower available here. Say, okay, well, geo, there's, there's volcanoes in Hawaii, right? Well, no, there's only volcanoes on the big island. And there's a little bit in Maui. And um, <clears throat> there's actually not enough, even if you were able to uh, exploit 100% of the... Um, geopower on the big island in Maui, you're still not getting there for Oahu. Uh, and then there's a political palatability problem. So the uh, indigenous community, rightfully so, is not, is not stoked on, um, you know, everything is sacred. The land is sacred here. Uh, and it, re it really is. You know, if you ever come here, Hawaii is a magical place and you can feel that, you know, that magic in the uh, in the land. Um, and, you know, we can't even get one neighborhood to build flood protection for a downstream neighborhood. Uh, you know, so Manoa Valley, there's, uh, you know, they, they want to build uh, to protect Waikiki and the tourists. They want to build some flood protection in the Manoa Valley. Well, the Manoa residents are like, no, let Waikiki drown. So that kind of sentiment is even within the same island Powering an Oahu from another island is again just not gonna work. Uh, so you know what's next? Well, nuclear. You know I I I, I like I like nuclear, um, but we don't have anywhere to site nuclear in the state of Hawaii. Siting uh, is a big problem with nuclear. You know people think oh nuclear is available everywhere. No, it's not. You have to have a siting for it. You have to have you know coastal. Uh, you have to have a coastal spot for it. And it has to be 30 miles from uh, the nearest major population center. And you have to have evacuation zones. Well, <laughs> you can't evacuate a million people off of an island 2,000 miles from anywhere. So nuclear, no go. Um, you know, there's, there's wave energy as well. Again, that's an intermittent supply. But even if we sighted 100% uh, of the Oahu coastline with waves again, you have the moorings and it's incredibly disruptive, uh, destructive to the environment. You're only getting 12% and wave energy is not there. Uh, it's not ready for the show yet. Um, it's not even proven out. Um, and then, you know, you think tidal, we don't actually have big tidal, uh, tidal energy here. Uh, and so I, I, you know, thinking back to my, I was in the oceanography department on, so what I learned, one thing we learned about uh, was ocean thermal energy conversion. Um, and this is the only viable 
energy source that can reliably 100%, more than 100% power, the not just Oahu, but the entire state of Hawaii. Um, and yeah, that's, that's what we're working on, ocean thermal energy. Talk to us about like how you guys are really going to capture this on a small scale and then scale this out wider. What does it look like presently? So the way ocean thermal energy conversion works is it uses, just like any energy uh, generating technology, a temperature differential except that temperature di differential is warm water at the surface. And then about a thousand meters down, there is five degrees Celsius water. Um, and what you can do is you can pump that cold water up to the surface and you can run a heat engine based on the temperature differential using uh, an amo ammonia as the working fluid. So, you know, the warm water evaporates the ammonia. You, there's, you know, pressure changes. You you run it through a turbine, spins the turbine, you use the cold water to condense it and just run that in a loop, evaporating, condensing, evaporating, condensing, evaporating, condensing. Um, and this technology has been around for 150 years. Uh, it is a, you know, incredibly old technology. It's an extremely simple uh, heat engine, um, but it's had issues in the past. Uh, you know, it's it kind of bad, bad timing. Um, uh, one of the one of the first plants was built around the time that they discovered uh, oil in the Middle East. So around that one of the plants was built in 1935. And well, we found the largest reserve of oil in the Middle East in 1938. So, you know, all funding for renewable energy projects kind of evaporated. Um, and I think uh, it was originally conceived back in 18, I can't remember the, the year, 1800 something. Um, and it's been around and it's been testing, uh, but as all renewable energy is, it's incredibly CapEx intensive and it's an economy of scale. So there's been lots of funding over the, you know, the last hundred years for small scale testing. Um, and, the problem is, is that in order to get to the large scale, 100, 100 plus megawatts, uh, you need to one, prove it out at a sufficient scale for a sufficient amount of time. Um, and so, but the problem has always been that that's going to be a complete financial loss. So somewhere in the five to 20 megawatt, megawatt range, for the almost the entire history of OTEC until recently, that has been building something in that range would be a, a complete financial loss on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars. And they're not even, you know, the government won't fund it because one, the US government doesn't doesn't really care about OTEC because really it's only viable for Hawaii and Puerto Rico and Guam. And, you know, we, we can't even, uh, yeah, the, the current argument, you know, nobody cares about Hawaii, nobody cares about Puerto Rico. Uh, you know, the, the current, they voted to take away Puerto Ricans' ability to access Social Security insurance, I think last week or two weeks ago. So what, why would you invest all this money, you know, especially when we produce so much fossil fuel into this technology? Um, but there's about a billion people on planet Earth that need it. Uh, but how do you get over what's called the innovation valley of death? And that's really where we're working on. Uh, we've partnered with uh, Makai Ocean Engineering here on Oahu. Um, they actually, uh, they're like UH, you know, we are, um, all the major research in OTEC comes from the state of Hawaii, uh, go figure. We're a Sea Grant, uh, you know, research university. And uh, it's really been, you know, UH has been the, the major, and so this is what we learn about. Uh, you know, they teach about it all the time. There is uh, Mackay Ocean Engineering built the first grid-connected OTEC power plant on the Big Island um, back in 2015. It was 100 kilowatt testing facility for um, heat exchangers. It's mostly to test their heat exchanger work that they were doing for the F-35, but, um, you know, they built the, the cold water piping goes down to about a thousand meters, pulls up cold water, and they ran a hundred kilowatt uh, OTEC plant off of it. 
Um, and so, you know, one thing we want to do is we want to do a uh, test there. So the first step, uh, we have a four phase plan to get to 100 megawatts and that's you know, 100 megawatt is going to be long time in the future we have to get there but we have a four phase plan and the first phase is we want to restart that um, 100 kilowatt facility so it's been mothballed for the last three years for the, pretty much the entire pandemic um, after testing was done of the heat exchangers there was really no reason to maintain it because uh, one, you know, it's an economy of scale, OTEC, as all renewable energy is, is an economy of scale. So the smaller you build, the more expensive the energy is. Uh, and at 100 kilowatt, you're, you're, you know, at the smallest of the small scale. So nobody's going to buy that energy. Um, and it got mothballed because it was expensive to keep it running, even though nobody was, there's nothing to test since the the technology has been around for 150 years, you know, it's a Rankine cycle. Some of the easiest heat engine you can you can build. Um, and we want to restart it and do some tests, full integration tests of the, you know, one of the cool things about this um, energy source is that it incorporates five degrees Celsius water uh, in the tropics. So you can integrate that cold water. There's an almost infinite supply of this cold water. Uh, you know, when you get to scale, we're talking about a, a Niagara Falls amount of water. Um, you can cool the ASICs. You know, you can cool your Bitcoin mining machines with this cold water supply. Uh, and you can get it down to five degrees C. Um, so you have, not only are you, you know, is it a firm base supply, which is really what you're looking for when you're mining, you know, intermittent supply is good if you're running S9s. S9s work really well with an intermittent supply, but, you know, obviously S9s aren't bringing in the bucks. Um, well, know, let me ask you this. I'm, I'm curious because you kind of touched on it briefly of like, it's not economically viable to really explore this path, but with Bitcoin mining, all of a sudden that equation changes. Talk to me first a little bit about sort of what is sort of the power capacity and in turn the number of miners that you've calculated to say, hey, if I can get this much energy going off of this system, I can power X number of Bitcoin miners. And that is actually where our minimum threshold for profitability lies. Sure. So the um, the capacity value is 98%. It's a firm supply. Um, and you know, like I said, you have to build in that middle range first. And that's always been the problem with OTEC is how do you build in that middle range? So the previous thinking was, well, let's just connect it. You know, if you're going to build 10 megawatts, say, of OTEC, well, you might as well connect it to land. Um, that gives you two options. You can build it on land, uh, which has, you know, major land costs. Uh, now the piping is a lot longer because you have to get the thousand meter depth. So you have to move the pipe, you know, horizontally as well as vertically. Um, and there's permitting costs, land costs, uh, you know, it, it's very costly. Um, the second option is to build it offshore on a vessel moored offshore, you know, uh, and then you just drop the pipe straight down. So that's a, that's a lot cheaper, you know, the, um, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And uh, then you just have a single cable, uh, power cable running back. Um, problem is, is that in order to build it on land, you have all these extra costs. Uh, and that brings the cost of energy way too high. Uh, 50, say 50 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, so nobody's gonna buy that. We pay 30 cents, nobody's gonna buy that. So what I figured out was that you could slash the capex of one of these mid-range uh, facilities um, by not connecting it to land. So, you know, the cost of the cable, if you're looking offshore, the cost of that cabling back to land is somewhere between 40 and $100 million, depending on how far out you have to build. So by not connecting it, nobody's going to buy the, the energy on land. Just cut the cable save 40 to $100 million right there. Well, if it's not connected to land, why do you need a mooring? Uh, the mooring 
huge expense, tens of millions of dollars. Um, well, you can cut that. Now you have a, you know, a floating vessel, right? There's no real need um, to have it moored. So you just have it floating. And Hawaii is, you know, we're, we're obviously a tropical community, but we're at around 21 degrees north. Uh, it's, you know, it's a little cold. The water gets a little nippy here in the, uh, the winter time. Uh, I don't wear, I don't need, you don't need a wetsuit, but you know, when you get in, you're like, when I go surfing, uh, to establish for our viewers, like when you say it gets cold in Hawaii in the winter time, like obviously it's still warmer than even the beaches in LA, but like how yes. cold is it? Uh, it's about, what is it? You know, high seventies um okay that's not cold and even even i have the the weakest skin when it comes to cold weather and i will be the first to tell you <laughs> yeah i, I you, you never need a wetsuit year round you know i surf uh i surf all the time and i've never worn a wetsuit surfing here um when i was a scuba diving for a living uh in another life uh i'd wear a wetsuit but i would be you know diving six times a day um but surfing there's absolutely no need, not even on the windiest, coldest day of the year. Uh, before the sun comes up, you still don't need a, a wetsuit to go surfing. Um, but it's not that, you know, it's still a little chillier. Uh, you can find better, better uh, temperature differential, delta Ts. So there's a heat blob in the, uh, you know, right normal to the um, normal to the sun, you know, as the sun's rays come in and hit the ocean, it's, uh, you know, just direct on and you get this heat blob or it's about 32 degrees Celsius. Um, and so by, you know, if you're not connected to land and you're not moored, you might as well go push that efficiency as far as possible. So, you know, the efficiency of OTEC is solely determined by the temperature differential. And, you know, coming from here where it's around 25 degrees C, going to somewhere where it's 32 degrees C, you're pushing the efficiency and the energy output by around 30 something percent. Um, and so you can just track it, track that 32 degree Celsius water year round. Um, and if you're doing this at the equator, what's nice is that, uh, you know, it's called the doldrums, uh, hurricanes and, um, you know, typhoons don't actually cross the equator. So, you don't need to hurricane proof it. So you're just, you're, you're improving the efficiency of the OTEC and you're cutting CapEx across the board. And this is actually not a new idea. Um, people have floated the idea of what's called grazing OTEC. Uh, and instead of, you know, um, and for a long time, but the problem is there hasn't been a consumer of energy in the middle of the ocean. So my, you know, insight was that, hey, you integrate the cooling, you know, the, the, the cold water into cooling the ASICs. And I know Bitmain will probably get at me, but you can overclock these machines. And Bitmain, you know, refuses to even discuss uh, overclocking. But of course, we all know that you can overclock them. Um, so we can overclock these machines more than just about anybody. The cooling is all inclusive with the energy source. And you can do all of this on board, right? Uh, with immersion, you know, the energy density of a mining operation is just ridiculous. Um, so you can, you know, another place we look to cut CapEx is a lot of these, you know, designs have a, um, have the platform, right? You build the OTEC directly into the platform. So what we figured is we can containerize this and just see fasten it to a barge, tug tow that barge out to the heat blob. And then you can use the, um, the outflow of the cold water, you know, this waste cold water for dynamic positioning of the boat. So you're not, you know, you're not burning fossil fuels out there, moving the boat um, and you're having, you know, you have the cooling all inclusive. So your PUE is essentially one, um, you know, it's, well, something that no one else can achieve. Uh, and so it becomes the most efficient way to produce Bitcoin. And it turns out that if we, you know, we're looking at a 10 megawatt, uh, we have designs for a 10 megawatt containerized grazing OTEC plant. We're looking at uh, 
all-inclusive energy costs for the entire deployment of around two and a half years of around 10 cents per kilowatt hour, which is still relatively high, right? Um, you know, compared to hydro, but turns out that, you know, with the cooling all-inclusive, now we can at least, where, where once it was a complete financial loss, we can turn a profit where no one in the last 150 years has been able to figure this, this problem out. And it's almost like Bitcoin was that missing piece of technology. And it comes back to that paper, I, which is why I wanted to start with the, uh, you know, the third industrial revolution idea and that Jeremy Rifkin was wrong, that Bitcoin is, that, is, that, is the transport uh, technology. You know, uh, there had been a lot of discussion of, you know, like I said, the grazing containerized is not not actually a new idea. Well, they were going to produce ammonia or hydrogen on board and shuttle it back and forth. Uh, you know, using hydrogen as that energy carrier, that transport technology um, for that energy. You know, you generate the energy, you transport it in some sort of energy carrier. Well, Bitcoin is that energy carrier. And you know, they, uh, Microsoft even looked at OTEC as potential for a data center. Uh, you know, you, again, using the cooling to cool the data center, bringing that PUE down to you know, one. Um, and turns out that there's, no, uh, there's not a lot of bandwidth in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> you know, a traditional data center needs terabytes of bandwidth. A Bitcoin mine, you just need the UTXO set. Um, so, and maybe this is just like a, a naive question. How much of the energy, I want to go back to like how you guys have energy controls right now with like the wind turbines that you explained earlier in this process, if it were to be up and operational, would all of the energy be used towards Bitcoin mining or would some of it still go to mainland as well? Uh, so in order to prove out the technology, you have to run it for a few years. You know, we're looking at 2.5 year deployment, but yes, if we're not connecting to land. So yeah, 100% of the energy output goes to Bitcoin mining because if you hooked it up to land, no one would buy it. No one, no one is going to buy that energy uh, hooked up to land. Uh, and then the cost, because you have all that extra capex, you have to now, you're hooking it up to land, you have the cable, you have the mooring, you have the hurricane proofing, you have to have the, uh, you know, the, you have to build the platform around the energy. Uh, you have the permitting costs. You have the environmental impact report. You have all of these extra costs that just snowball, leading to a essentially a complete financial loss hooking it up to land. But once you get to the larger scale, right? You know, once once you prove it out in this innovation valley of death, once you can get through that innovation valley of death and you prove that the technology, which has been around forever, we know that's the interesting thing is that the technology risk with the technology, it's not like Elon Musk claiming that he can go to Mars, um, which he can't. Um, it's not like you have to invent some magic new technology like for batteries, oh, we have to get you know, 10 times better batteries. That's not, that's not going to happen. There is no, there is no magic new battery technology that's going to just come along and change, change the game. Um, unlike those technologies, there is no, the technology risk is, is small. We know how pumps work. We know how Rankin cycle works. You know, you, you can get most of the, you know, most of the stuff right off the shelf. Um, it's just about putting it together. It's not, you know, it's not, this isn't, this isn't rocket science, right? This is pumps. You know, uh, it's ocean science. It's ocean. It's oceanography, exactly. Um, and so, you know, yeah, one hundred percent of that energy for you know a ten, say the ten megawatt grazing facility would go to Bitcoin mining because it's the only person, the only uh, you know industry that will buy energy no matter where you are. Um, I'm curious because we've we've touched a little bit on this. In fact that you know the location where you guys are deploying this works because hurricanes are not necessarily an issue so that's something that you have to be considered considerate of when deploying this to other locations or expanding this out deeper i'm curious to beyond just hurricanes what are other sort of constraints of where you could possibly go to launch this type of a project so you have 23 south to 23 north um 
you know, it's only in the tropics, Latitude, right? right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that covers about, you know, it's a third of the planet. Um, and of course, it's only in deep water. So you need to, you need access to about a thousand meters of depth uh, in order to get that temperature differential, right? And you're using the oceans as a battery. Um, sun hits the, uh, the equator, warms the water up. Uh, the ocean currents transport it north to the poles where it sinks down low. You know, it gets colder. Uh, the, as the ice forms, it, uh, you know, it becomes um, super salty. The water, you know, ice is fresh water. So the water that's left behind from the ice formation is super salty. Density is a, a function of, um, the density of water is a function of temperature and the content. So it's super salty, super cold, sinks down deep, and then it's transported back. Um, and it turns out that, you know, the Pacific is one of the last places for uh, that, you know, that those undersea currents to go. And as that current is going around the world on its way to the Pacific, things are raining down. You know, it's the fancy word is called detritus, uh, but it's just shit. Um, you know, things live, die, fall down, and they accumulate in these undersea currents. So we're pulling them up and they're super nutrient dense. And what you can do is you can release it at the surface and you generate primary production. Uh, and primary production pulls carbon out and then they die and sink down. So it's carbon capture and storage. So there's, um, you know, one thing, there's, there's a few environmental concerns that need to be taken care of. Um, there's a noise, obviously, you're pumping up lots of water, it's super noisy. So, you know, where to stick the, uh, you know, how deep to put it, about a thousand meters, you don't have too much noise attenuation problems. Um, if a plant is stationary and you're releasing that cold water at the surface, you get too much primary production and you end up with eutrophication. Uh, you know, you get, you get too much primary production and then, um, you know, the, the other single cell organisms come and eat the primary producers and you get, you know, like a red tide sort of deal. Um, but if you're moving, that's not really a concern. Um, yeah, I mean, besides, you know, you, you really just need deep water and warm temperature at the surface. Anywhere, anywhere will work. I might be like dumbing this down a little too much, but this is more for my sake. And I'm going to say it's for the sake of listeners. When you talk these undersea currents, like this is no different than like the current that's in Finding Nemo, for example, like these just pushes of water and airflow that essentially like they're not impacting the rest of the water itself, but this flow creates a source of energy and that's yeah. what you guys are capitalizing on. Yeah. You know, the Gulf Stream, uh, everybody, most everybody's heard of the Gulf Stream. That's just one of these currents. It's transporting heat from the, uh, the tropics northwards. Uh, and then, you know, it, yeah, on the, on the opposite side. So on the West coast, if you're on the West coast, you, you know, the reason why it's cold all the time and not warm, even though, uh, is because that's how the gyres work, you know, it goes around and around. So the warm water cup, there's a Gulf Stream equivalent on the uh, west coast of the Pacific Basin. And then just like there's a cold water, uh, you know, there, there's the um, that there's the cold water on the east coast, uh, on the east side of the Atlantic Basin, you know, it just goes around in a circle. And then at the at the poles, some of it goes down and sinks down below just you know, there's, it's called the uh, thermohaline circulation. Thermo temperature, haline salt, salinity, um, density is a function of salinity and temperature. No, th thank you for breaking that down for for uh, my audience's knowledge. That I did. I asked this question for you guys, not for me. Um, and then the the second layer you touched on before I asked the silly question was the necessity for warm water. We've essentially established that there's one third of the planet's surface area that you guys can sort of really capitalize this on due to the hurricanes. But it also seems like the second bonus is being in the center of the earth. That is where the warmest climate and i.e. the warmest water is going to be. How does this 
like, what is the temperature threshold at that point? Is there like a, Hey, if the water's at 65 Fahrenheit, this is too cold. Now, all of a sudden, is there that sort of threshold that you have? 20 degrees C uh, is the Delta T that you really, you know, the change in temperature between the warm, you know, the warm and the cold is about 20 degrees C is where the drop off in efficiency just starts happening. Um, you know, it's, I think down to, uh, down to about 12 degrees C or so is where the, the total break even is on it. Um, you know, so if you have a 12 degrees C Delta T, you're just powering the pumps. There's no, there's no net out of it. Um, and then at 20 degrees C, I believe the total efficiency of the system is around, uh, you know, you have to subtract out the pumping, you have to subtract out um, uh, all, all the other minor thing. It comes out to about three to 4% is the net energy output um, that you can get. Uh, but if you're at 32 degrees C, so you know the delta T of 27 degrees, now you're pushing five, 6%, which is a, a really good increase in efficiency. So water by you really get that hot? Not, like not by us, no. Okay. That's why we have, to go to the, uh, we have to go to the heat lob, right? Okay. Uh, to make one of these 10 megawatt, you know, in this innovation valley of death, you have to go to, you have to find the highest delta T in the ocean uh, to really make it actually work financially. Not, not to make it work technically, but to make it work financially, you have to push that efficiency everywhere you can. So where, what resources go into that? I'm assuming some sort of thermal mapping of the water temperatures helps to like expedite this process, but like and forgive my ignorance in these questions. This is not something that I'm spending my day to day really understanding or familiar with these texts, but like how much, how much area are you able to cover right now? Because it feels like to find like gold mine like that, if you will, pun intended, like you have to kind of keep moving to find where it is and how to capitalize on it. Uh, temperature is really easy. Uh, there's plenty of satellites. Um, Data is all publicly available. Uh, there's the Argo float system. Um, you know, there's hundreds of, uh, you know, these autonomous sort of floats just floating around the ocean taking, you know, uh, temperature, salinity, um, anything you can measure in a solid state, they read and then they transmit back. And what they do is they uh, come to the surface, recharge, dive deep, float around, gather data, come up, transmit the data, uh, you know, re recharge, go back down. And there's hundreds of them. Um, I've been on a few cruises where you could just go pick, pick these things up, repair them, toss them back in the ocean, um, deploy new ones. Got and it. so, yeah, the temperature data for the ocean is really well known. Um, I mean, it's something, you know, most... Uh, at least undergrads play around with in the oceanography department. Yeah, it, finding the highest delta T is not not difficult. You know, you, it's pretty easy from from sat with satellites. You know, I, I also want to go back and again for, forgive the ignorance on this, but you kind of mentioned at the start of this process, what's happening is water is getting pumped up through from this cold, and that is sort of what initiates this process. But I'm curious, where's the energy source for this initial pump? Is that automated in the system already? Is that done based on the tides moving? Where is that initial energy force coming from? So the first energy is you're going to have to have another energy source. So in order to start the pumps, uh, you have to have, you know, whether it's fossil fuels or whatever, doesn't really matter. But once you have that pump going, then you use the energy, the net output uh, to power those pumps. Okay. So it's self-sufficient just within yeah. an, it's almost like starting the engine you have to use like a little bit more fuel just to start the engine and then after that it's operating yeah exactly yeah got it and talk to me a little bit now about like how does this because this is as you've mentioned an energy sort of capture 
system that's been around for over a century, but hasn't been capitalized yet. What do you see or envision the way you have been able to utilize this? How does that look for the future of this energy capture and utilization, not related directly to sort of how it's now going to mine Bitcoin miners, but just now how we can look and understand energy utilization in a new way? So, you know, our goal is to get it to full scale, uh, you know, to scale this, this technology out. Um, so we have to get through this innovation valley of death, uh, get through this 10 megawatt. And there's, uh, there's actually a, a pretty big market for uh, containerized 10, 10 megawatt, um, 10 megawatt uh, OTEC, you know, con containers, right? Um, but then once we get through that, once we can prove that it works at scale, uh, for a sufficient amount of time, it becomes an attractive investment to go bigger, uh, you know, to 100 megawatts. And there's some, you know, there's some technical challenges, engineering challenges with uh, pumping up, you know, I guess, the, so a 100 megawatt uh, power plant is going to have a tube about 12 meters in diameter, and you're pumping up uh, about a Olympic swimming pool amount of water every second. Uh, so there's technical challenges there, but a lot of those get solved at the 10 megawatt, uh, 10 megawatt size. Uh, and they're not, you know, it's not like you're, you have to solve the radiation problem with going to Mars, which again, Elon will never solve, um, or the fact that you can't actually carry enough water for the three-year journey on the Starship. Um, but yeah, it's, it, they're not insurmountable. It's just about working at that scale. So once you get past the innovation value of death, 10 megawatts, prove it out. Now you can get investment, you know, for a, a billion dollar, 100 megawatt plant. And for one of those, you, you could put it in the middle of the ocean, mine Bitcoin at, you know, sub four, four cents, five, five cents, sub five, somewhere in that range uh, per kilowatt hour, um, you know, in the middle of the ocean. Um, or you could, of course, moor it, connect it up to land. Um, and it turns out that, you know, that's, that's really, that's the end goal of this is to build these power plants out for places all over the world. Uh, there's about a billion people uh, in the range of, you know, where OTEC works, you know, turns out a lot of people live at the equator. And it turns out that a lot of those people who live at the equator live at the coasts. Um, and so this becomes a viable energy source for places like, you know, not just island nations, but for, you know, Indonesia, uh, you know, the entire, the Ivory Coast of Africa, for some places in the Middle East, for India, for, you know, Mexico, for, I mean, again, a, a billion people can use this. Um, and you know what you do is you have it moored offshore, connected to land, um, and turns out that a lot of those places that can use this also have plenty of solar and wind energy. So, you know, and you, we still want that. You still want that. Um, but what you do is instead of curtailing those and using S9s, you use OTEC. You curtail the OTEC. Um, because again, you know, the cold water is, is still there. So you can centralize that curtailment to one of these offshore OTEC plants and use, you know, it, mine Bitcoin, um, you know, as the demand response. And because you're integrating that cold water supply, it's way more efficient to do it there. I mean, you know, Satoshi talked about the poles dominating hash rate. Well, there's two terawatts of OTEC available in the ocean um, and all cooling is all inclusive. So you can cool as good as a hydro plant uh, in you know, Siberia during the winter all year round in the tropics, which is, I mean, that opens up an entire third of the, the planet to um, you know, the hash rate race. I'm, I'm kind of curious though, because when we started this conversation, it, it seemed as though this would and I was making this assumption that this would be more geared towards like a private entity or private individuals to go off and build this rather than partnering with governments, just seeing as the hurdles to essentially take the power from what you capture, bring it to mainland, two cost 
inefficient as well as just the hurdles there. It just, it's too much of a headache to do that, but it almost sounds like in the future iterations, you want to have that partnership. Um, maybe it's a little bit of cart before the horse right now. Let's see if we can get this up yeah. and operational, but what are, how are you eyeing sort of that balance between going for private investors to really build this out versus finishing the ultimate goal and essentially partnering with governments and local areas and people so that they can be utilizing this energy? Well, the government's very slow. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has, has got Literally that. But or both. Both, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's they've, the government has had, a, has had the chance to finance this. Uh, you know, the government, if they can, you know, as we now know, they can print infinite amounts of money. Why haven't they, you know, invested in this? Um, they're slow. Uh, there's been no real incentive to do energy experimentation over the last hundred years uh, since we found oil. Um, all, you know, if, if you can't go from, you know, if you can't get to a hundred, uh, you know, if you have to go, you know, zero to a hundred, they're, they're not going to invest in it. They, you know, the government wants a hundred percent right off the bat. Um, well, OTEC, you need to get through that, that, uh, you know, experimenting phase. Um, and not just the experimenting at scale phase. We've done the experiments in the small scale. We got to do, you know, now we've got to do those experiments at, uh, you know, at scale. Um, and so the private market is the way to go. Uh, and Bitcoin provides that incentive. It's, hey, if this works out and it looks like it does, you now become, you know, you, you can produce Bitcoin more efficiently than anybody else. You can get that capital. Uh, it provides that incentive um, to experiment in new energy. Um, you know, it's the, it's that, it's that transport, um, you know, the transport leg of the industrial revolution provides that financial incentive. Um, and even, I think, uh, Rifkin even talks about, uh, how do we finance this transition? And he talks about, oh, the sharing economy and drones and, no, uh, full self-driving cars are not coming anytime soon. Elon has been promising that for seven years and we still don't have it. And now they're, you know, the, the most recent press releases say it's nowhere close to being ready, even though every year since 2013, he's, oh, it's coming next year. Oh yeah, full self-driving. We're going to flip your car on and it's going to be full self-driving. Hasn't happened. Um, and, uh, you know, a self-driving truck is not, that much more uh, efficient, you know, from an economic standpoint than a car, you know, a giant truck uh, with a guy driving, you know, a giant ship transiting the ocean is not, you know, is not that much, is not saving that much money by uh, using an expensive uh, AI, especially when you have to have that guy on board anyway. Um, so, you know, I mean, look, but Bitcoin. I, I will... I will only go to further strengthen what you are saying in this anti-Elon rant, but I mean, look, we've been, we've been bait and switched for years now on what we're going to get back to the future. I think set a little too many expectations, a little too high. I, I will, I will throw one more wrench in there in that, like the idea of even having flying cars, we as humans have enough trouble going left, right, forward, and backwards. Yeah. You want to add up and down to this equation? No, I'm sorry, but absolutely not. Never going to happen. Yeah. Um, and then electric trucks are just really stupid anyway. Um, not, 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 not electric trucks like, you know, the, the cyber truck, whenever that comes out. Um, I mean, but I'll, like I'll even semis. say like all electric vehicles are just like they're wasteful. Because you're not off of fossil fuel energy. We still yeah. live on an electrical grid that relies on so much fossil fuel. So it's it's more of a, well, I don't see that I'm contributing, so therefore I'm doing better when in reality, like, no, you live in a state where your energy grid is reliant on fossil fuel. So you plugging in your Tesla is just no different than going to the gas pump based on where you live and based on yeah. just the systems we have in place. But systems like what you are building and, the, and what your work is doing could and should help offset that you touched yeah. a little bit and i'm kind of curious if you can't share these things i fully understand but what are some of the 
pushbacks you received when reaching out to the government and trying to sort of bring them into the fold or make them aware were they just unresponsive or were they concerned that were probably rooted in ignorance? No, um, if you look at, uh, OTEC is included in just about every EIA report um, as one of the keys to the, the transition. Um, they're just slow with funding. Um, and it, it becomes even harder when you start talking about Bitcoin. Uh, as soon as you, you talk about Bitcoin, ears, you know, kind of shut off. Um, when I was shopping around my, you know, uh, Rifkin myth, you know, was wrong kind of paper to the departments. Uh, I went to Mora, um, Camilo Mora, uh, who was not interested and still then, you know, read the paper, heard the idea, then published his idea that uh, Bitcoin will boil the oceans and, you know, push us over the two degree C. I was told by uh, one Michael, uh, Dr. Michael Roberts, that I should drop out and that Bitcoin's a scam. Um, and that I should work for the Winklevoss twins, which I guess I probably should have, uh, would have saved some money there. Um, <laughs> but no, the, the government is, is really slow. Funding from the government, we've explored, uh, I mean, there's tax credits that we can get. Uh, you know, we've, we've looked into tax credits, um, R&D credits, uh, potentially there's some, uh, some funding to get for carbon capture and storage, but Government funding takes a long time and this needs to happen quickly, right? Uh, and that's why Bitcoin is really so important in this energy transition is it, you know, whenever you wanna build something fast and get it done quickly, the private, if there's a financial incentive to do it, the private market will get there faster and more efficiently than the government. And this is, I'm personally a Bernie Sanders guy, um, so. My people. <laughs> I admit that. I know. We're about to get roasted. We're about to get roasted. By I know. Him. I know. I know. I have no problem <laughs> saying it. We but, in a you know, country. So give me good socialism if we're going to have it. Otherwise, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel dirty saying that, well, I, I there's a private market solution to this. But if you look at how the last industrial revolutions were built out and how that infrastructure got built out in in such a short amount of time, it wasn't the government. It wasn't the government fueling, uh, you know, the transition to, uh, you know, steam power. It wasn't the government funding the transition to uh, oil. Uh, it was the private market seeing a, uh, a profit. There's a profit mechanism that enabled the, you know, enabled risk takers to come in and say, hey, 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 I'm going to get that money. Uh, and I'm going <laughs> to, and that's, that's really what we've needed. Um, and that was another area where the, uh, you know, Rifkin kind of, kind of flubbed, um, with, with respect to the transport technology is that relies a lot on, you know, the government funding and they can only go that so far. I mean, there's been lots of government funding, uh, but none of it works for, you know, the developing world. <laughs>